It's Thursday, November 5th, and you are listening to Combing the Stacks, your new go-to podcast for album reviews and history. Whether you are a returning listener or a first-timer, we thank you for joining us on our journey through six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each week, we dig into the top 100 albums of the 1960s, as identified by our friends at the website besteveralbums.com. This week, we celebrate our 19th episode of Season 1. Your hosts are the team that has been described as both faithful and feckless, fun-loving and felonious, John, Josh, and Matt. This week, we cover albums ranked at number 48, 46, and 44 on the charts that offer different slices of late 60s rock and roll. We start things off with Matt covering Bookends, the fourth studio album by Combing the Stacks regulars Simon and Garfunkel. This 1968 album marks our third trip into their five-album discography after previously covering Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time and Sounds of Silence in previous episodes. Our second segment sends us into the surreal world of the Moody Blues' second studio album, Days of Future Past. We've never covered the band on CTS, and there's no better place to start than their first platinum album from 1967. Josh will be at the controls in segment two. We finish the show with our third segment covering the band's 1968 debut album, Music from Big Pink. While we've never covered the band in a full segment, their presence has been felt in previous episodes on Bob Dylan and the Birds, and now they get the full CTS treatment in a segment hosted by John. Morrissey warned us that November spawned a monster, but we promised that coming to Stacks is more of a friendly ghost. See you inside.
hello. It is probably when you're listening to this. Hopefully you're listening day one. So that would mean that it is November 5th, 2020. Close to the weekend, a couple days after the election. We still, as we tape this, are not 100% sure of the end result. We are certainly not going to get political, but just for the context of where we're at, that's where we're at right now. Let's do a quick check-in since it's there's a lot going on uh, in life in general right now. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm ready, ready to talk some music and take my mind off of all the stuff that's going on. <laughs> stuff that's going on. Gotcha. Me too. And we have some interesting albums this week, I think, that will provide lively banter. How about you, Matt? How are you doing? I'm good. I am both surprised and honored to be back on the podcast after the tongue lashing that I got last week. A lot of oh, feedback on do, that. Do, do tell before we go to Comey and the Stacks because I'm interested. <laughs> well, are you talking about us going at you or are you talking exactly about... exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so not the feedback of the CTS Army more. No, no. I, I, I Actually, the feedback I got was, ooh, that was kind of exciting. It was a little, uh, you know, the, 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 the argu- arguments were... Um, I, I don't know. They made it more interesting, I guess. So a little lively yes. debate going on. I heard the same thing. You know, we're not going to manufacture debate just to have it. So like if we if we all like an album, we're not uh, planning this out. But yeah, it is nice every once in a while to have divergent opinions. You can know that uh, we keep it honest and we probably prepare less for these shows in terms of like podcast formats than almost any podcast I've ever heard of. So you might have been able to hear that last week because I think we were all genuinely stunned at each other's opinions because we might have thought the opposite way, which kind of made for fun in the moment reaction. So uh, I don't want to belabor though, because I know there's definitely some cleaning of the stacks that needs to be done. And I know that Matt in particular has asked for that time. So I'll give a little bit of a pause right here so that Josh can put in the music and then we'll clean. So I, I wanted to... Um talk i wanted to learn a little bit more about that whole kinks uh controversy with the you wanted to learn more about some kinks some kinks is what you wanted to learn the kinks controversy what was that google search Uh, yes which is an album for the kinks it is (laughs) i know i know i I realized that after i said it Um, and as 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 josh just said right there too i'm sure the browser history is fascinating when you type that in incognito (laughs) incognito mode So with them being banned, right? So I, I just looked up and I found, I read the side of this article about a show in 1965. I guess this was in Cardiff. I think that's, is that, that's in England, I think, but that is in Wales. That's Wales. It's yeah. in Wales. Thank you. Geography. We can, we just yeah. lost any viewer from Wales. That's ever going to tune in right there. Come we back apologize. Did yeah. we have any, did we have any Wales? Where? Not yet, Welsh? but if we have one down the road and they're listening, we apologize for uh, they the, won't be listening, the yeah. American geographical ignorance there. Anyway. So apparently there was at a show there where uh, the drummer Mick Avery and Dave Davies got into a fight. But while they were in a fight the night before, like a drunken stupor. And so the next night when they had the show, Dave Davies apparently didn't really, uh, I guess he got his ass kicked the night before and he didn't appreciate um, Avery's drum playing. So two songs into the set, Davies kicked over his drum set and said, quote, (laughs) why don't you get your cock out and play the snare with it? It'll probably sound better. At which point ah. Avery takes the symbol from the guitar and like throws it frisbee style and it knocks Davies out and requires him to get wow. rushed to the hospital to get 16 stitches. So Avery takes off thinking that like he I just killed the guy in the band, you know, the, the guitarist <laughs> in the band. He gets caught by the cops and then he denies the he denies the incident even happened and the cops said 
dude, we have 5,000 witnesses who are at the show who saw you do this. So um, there were so many things about that story I found entertaining. And it's probably things like that that contributed mm-hmm. to their banishment from the they, U.S. They fought a lot. Like one of the things, and it's funny because I've covered both of these bands as our representative. One thing about the Kinks and the Who is that they were constantly getting into like physical altercations with each other throughout large parts of their early career. Um, with the Kinks, I think they're not sure if it was that incident or just a cu- accumulation of incidents. Like we talked about, there was something with Dick Clark that was an issue. There was another right. concert. So they're not sure which or if it was just the accumulation or timing. But yeah, that it's there's at least four <laughs> or five different Kinks fighting each other stories, including the Davies brothers having some have at it. And then, yeah, the Who were also always fighting each other, especially Keith Moon was fighting like everybody in that bit, as was Pete Townsend actually was often the uh, provocateur. I guess so. I just didn't think of it when I hear that they were fighting on stage. I, di- I guess I didn't realize that somebody actually tossed a symbol and knocked them out. Like that just seemed like a different level. So um, uh, yeah, so I found that funny. Do you, um, do you find that like just most of the famous bands of the sixties, it's amazing how many of them just did not get along. And you know, really when you think about it, because the stones had, you know, some yeah. pretty notable riffs, um, the Beatles had some riffs there for a while, uh, and certainly the Who were notorious for playing together but not really liking each other after a while. And, you know, the Kinks had a lot of estrangements and band changes. Yeah, I I don't know if... if yeah, does that does that not happen as much anymore? I never really thought of that before. I mean, like, you, or... you hear about tension, but you don't hear it like... Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, and even like... I mean, it carries over to the 70s because there's plenty of bands that have issues in the 70s, too. But, yeah, you, you really don't. Like, you don't hear, like, about, like, Radiohead or, like, The Strokes, you know, like, all beating the shit out of each other. They just yeah. take break. They just take breaks now, you know? And yeah. then re- yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Fab's not tossing symbols at Julian Casablanca's face or anything like that. So, um, yeah, no, that's, just, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's interesting. So... Um, and then the other real thing I had quick was that we we, had, we talked about the Jefferson Airplane last week, and Grace Slick had a birthday on October 30th, so just like the day after we recorded, or two days after. She is 81 years old. Woo, nice. Which, yeah, so happy birthday, Grace. I wonder she if has, she still she, sings for fun. She has officially not been singing for 31 years professionally, because that's, what would you say, John? Because of that John, quote, after, that yeah, quote, yep. Mm-hmm. You turn 50, you stop being a rock star, so. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a, one of my favorite quotes in all of rock, and so true. So, yep, uh, that's that's good stuff, Matt. That's that's some strong cleaning yeah, right there. Nice, good stories. Is there is there anything? And there's going to be some good stories that come out of the albums this week too. But before I move on to that, Josh, is there anything you want to clean, or do you feel you got it? I feel pretty clean. I don't have anything. Feel pretty, feel pretty clean and scrubbed. So, yep. all right. Well, this week, uh, for those that are wondering, uh, here's the order before we go into it. We are going to be doing our third Simon and Garfunkel album, Bookends. And while speaking Matt, of a speaking of people who don't get along too well, yes, yeah, speaking of people that don't get along, there we go. See, it's a theme, uh, and it's funny because I can pretty much say that across the board this week in a lot of different stuff. Although second episode, second album, Moody Blues. As far as I know, they 
get along pretty well and, yes. and we're covering days of future past so the moody blues i do believe are the exception to that rule but certainly uh, number three music from big pink by the band that is a band that does not get along particularly well well most notably one member of it which we'll talk about in that segment uh but they have their own sordid history so simon and garfunkel for the third time and then the moody blues and the band for the first time each so with that in mind matt have at it book all right all right so uh in the opening montage we heard a clip from hazy shade of winter and now we're going to hear a piece a clip from the song america Now that we're all feeling patriotic, let's get into bookends. Um, can I can is, I jump in real quick? Of course. So, <laughs> you sound so enthusiastic <laughs> there. Of course, hazy John, shade, please. Ha- hazy Shade of Winter at the beginning. Who is the famous cover of that that I grew up thinking sang this song originally when I was eight years old? Bananarama. Good guess. That was a good quite. guess. Do you, do you know, Josh? Or? I, I know. I just, I'm pretty sure Matt knows, yeah. So. I do. It's the yep. Bangles. Oh. The Bangles, yes. It's a very good cover. Mixed up. Mm-hmm. So all girl bands are the same, Josh. That's basically yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so this is hey. the. Uh, no, go ahead. I was, I was going to make a joke. I was going to say, for all Josh knows, they're letting women play rock and roll for the first time right now. So. <laughs> Who let these women play <laughs> guitar? Um, so this is the uh, duo's fourth studio album. It was recorded over a fairly lengthy period of time. Time, uh, starting in September of 1966 um, and through all the way through February 1968 but most of the work actually started you know in, in late 1967 so it was most of the album was recorded in a relatively short period of time it was released on April 3rd 1968 which was 24 hours before what famous event what was the date again April 3rd 1968 was it Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King, King? Jr.? You yeah. got it. See, you guys are better with history than I am with geography. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so Simon, Paul Simon, up leading up to this album, he experienced a period of uh, writer's block that that he was. So it kind of took him a little while to get the songs down. And Columbia execs were pushing for a little bit more output because they were used to getting records at two to three albums a year. So this was um, a, a little troublesome for Columbia. Um, but uh, I think with the result of how this well this album did, that they ended up being okay with it. Because uh, this album did reach number one on the Billboard charts and stayed there for seven straight weeks. And it remained on the Billboard charts for a total of 66 consecutive weeks. Um, and it had such heavy pre-orders that Columbia was able to apply for award certification before any copies left the warehouse of the factory. So this was they, they knew Can, this was going to be a big, uh, big, big hit. Can I ask something that I just thought of real time? Mm. did that time on the charts bookend the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s matt or did it um, end in the 60s 60s april 68 no oh well, I, I thought i was gonna I do mean, a cool like it wasn't yeah, in okay. the 70s it was close though john it was mm-hmm. close that um 
Uh, and Clive Davis at Columbia, famous music mogul Clive Davis, anticipated that the album was going to be successful. And he made the suggestion of raising the price of the album $1 above the industry average to a whopping $5.79, which... That's a lot Let's of see money how good your math is. Do you know how much money that equates to today? Ooh. $25? Uh, in in 2019. So that's just, and, but one of the ways he was able to justify it was because they included a really nifty looking poster in the vinyl (laughs) copy. So you not only got the album, (laughs) you got, you got a poster, Simon and Garfunkel silhouetted against like the backdrop of the Brooklyn bridge or something like that. So um, I I, I don't think, I think Simon and Garfunkel worked that they had a little bit of an argument with that. Um, uh, And it's unclear exactly if that's, if Davis was able to keep, keep that going for a while. But um, so this is a concept album, which, um, I was wondering so that. That was the yeah, note I wrote down. I, yeah, I, I was too. I, it's funny you say that because I was thinking that too. So, But it's a concept album in a weird way because only the first side entails the concept because side two yes. is, essentially, yep. is, is essentially a bunch of stuff that were kind of throwaway tunes that didn't really make the graduate soundtrack, which came out before this. Um, that so, so answers the question I had in the segment, Matt. And it sounds you. like Josh did too, but yep, okay. Yes. Yeah. Now, now the analogy works because it's not a true bookend of the 60s. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, the, the, well, the first side is the bookend, right? Um, so yeah, I guess that those, some of those songs on the second side were, you know, Simon had pitched to Mike Nichols, the director of The Graduate, who okay. didn't really, I think is, like, what was it? I forget the names. Of, is uh, the I'll, concept... But, is the concept oh. like from birth to death? Is that it what is. it yes. sounded lyrically like that's okay. Even yep. the names, right? Like save Voices the life of, of my child people. and voice of old people and old friends. And the, and Simon and Garfunkel aren't exactly opaque in terms of their songwriting. So do you think if they did the remake of this album or the remastered version, that songs uh, that sounds from old people would just be Simon and Garfunkel talking? <laughs> yeah, pro- probably. Yes. They should right? do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, and prior to recording, uh, Simon told Garfunkel, quote, I'm going to start writing a whole side of an album, a cycle of songs. I want the early ones to be about youth and the last song to be about old age. And I want the feel I want the feel of each song to fit. So, yes, this is basically the uh, looking through the lifespan of a, of, of a human life. Um, the lyrics concerned youth, alienation, life, love, disillusionment, relationships, old age, and mortality. Not that I would know any of that but, because I just read that from a. I wasn't <laughs> listening to lyrics at all, so I. But only that. for the first seven songs, right? So that that whole artistic statement would be like a crisp, like fifteen minutes, pretty yes. much, right? Yeah, because yes. the whole album's twenty nine minutes, and there's it's five more songs. Sh- yeah, yeah, and one of the songs is a two minute old people talking about mucus and money and stuff. So, yeah, so. The um, Simon attributed that the, some of these themes that he was writing about were uh, to the feelings that he experienced while smoking grass, which he often did while writing. He felt that he needed to smoke grass to write his best songs. Um, and let's see. So this album actually was was very successful. It kind of, you know, a coupled with the, with the success of The Graduate and the soundtrack, it really launched these guys into the stratosphere. Simon began getting more off, many offers to score different films. Um, you know, licensing music to 
movies, um, and Paul Simon called it their first serious p uh, piece of work. Um, another funny thing about this was that the, gr the group was under an older contract with Columbia Records, and this contract stipulated that Columbia would pay for all studio costs, and Simon and Garfunkel took advantage of this because they got a bunch of uh, musicians, including, you know, uh, people from orchestras, so there's like, you know, cellos and violas and you know orchestra or uh, uh different types of instruments instruments from orchestras um they also took that song punky's dilemma which might have been one of the songs that was re rejected from the um the graduate that took over 50 hours to record um they, cool. they were being extremely meticulous to the point where they might they would even record single notes to fit into the music so it was yeah simon was going did, nuts you know, with the production give me a the break. brian wilson the brian wilson style uh production there yes yes exactly mm -hmm. um and this remember the the album that came out prior to this was um john's favorite album title parsley sage rosemary and time and that was the first album that simon really took the helm you know, with production. And so he took this to the next level. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but this also began to see the decline of the duo's collaboration and showed early signs of, uh, of, of, of Simon's intention to go solo. Um, but that's basically the history of the, you know, kind of little synopsis of the record. So let's uh, go into the feedback here. So let's start with you, Josh. What do you think? So once I figured out that whole concept album start, and you guys already know how I feel about concept albums, uh, I was on board with this album. Uh, I did not like the first, the first concept portion of the album. I thought that was the weaker part of the album. I thought all the songs on the back end were really good. That being said, there's still some good songs in the fir first part, but I think overall this album is uneven. It seems like... <laughs> just ditch the concept part of the album and just play the good songs like more than half the songs on here are awesome so it's it, the concept album just seems half baked when it's only half the album and i don't know why they did it uh and the songs like hazy shade of winter are are excellent and you don't need a concept to hold up a good song in my opinion i really like this album um, this album also sounds really good on headphones. I found out. I don't know if you guys experienced mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. but you could hear a lot of those instruments in the background that Matt was alluding to. I heard some clarinet and sax, and you can hear people talking uh, in the background at some point or, or just like different sounds. Um, and you have like on America, you get the bass in one ear and then you, you hear other stuff in the other ear that it's really cool um so i'm a big fan of that um i appreciate the album more after here listening to it on on headphones yeah i think overall it's great um faking it was my favorite song that i had not heard before i really like the harmonies on that and the drop they do this like drop in the chorus they drop their voices or drop the tempo or something that's cool and i mean the highs on this album are really high so i for that alone, it's worth listening to, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I actually have very much a similar take to Josh. I think if you just were to strip out the three pieces that were just uh, cons, I guess Josh was calling it concept piece, but one is a two minutes and seven seconds of older folks talking about the world, and then there's two short little reprises that open and end the first section of the album that are musical pieces, but also 
involve other stuff. If, if you were to take those out and you were to look at it as nine songs, this is the strongest Simon and Garfunkel album we've covered by quite a bit. Um, and I think we know by now, I was a pretty big fan of Sounds of Silence uh, and it surprised me how much I liked it, but, but this album's better. And I think it's, as Josh said, it's the, the back end of it, like faking it and uh, Mrs. Robinson, a hazy shade of winter. Um, even at the zoo being somewhat goofy, it was goofy <laughs> in a good way, not in a bad way. It was a catchy, uh, it was a catchy like too. Yep. Yeah. And, and I did like um, some of the songs earlier in the album once I listened to them a second or third time. Also, this album, I mentioned it before, we joked about the Brian Wilson production, but it very much was like a Beach Boys album or a Bob Dylan album in that there was a lot of instrumentation in the background, and the second or third time you listen to it, you're picking out the different instruments that are in there. Uh, you know, uh, Josh mentioned some, but it makes sense when Matt said a lot of musicians were brought in, because in each song you can see more sophistication in terms of both the production and the amount of instrumentation layering the background than you did in the earlier albums. Um, and so, and, and with the, you know, the stereo, you know, moving away from the mono, it definitely, you can hear it mm -hmm. even more pronounced, especially the bass lines. It, it starts to sound like a Dylan album in the sense that the bass lines pop out at you, even though they're singing you know, folk rock pretty much, um, which was a staple of how I always hear Bob Dylan. So mm -hmm. I would definitely say this is a recommendation for you. And, and one thing about Simon and Garfunkel, man, if you don't love the album, they're out the door in like 30 minutes tops. <laughs> so, yes. and that's the thing. It's like, it's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be offended by something that only lasts 30 minutes, you know? So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think I have a similar reaction to you guys. Um, I well, first of all, I will say that this has my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song on it, which is America. I've I love that song. There's it's it's the chorus. The I like how it's very it's subtle. It's um you know it's 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 it's. I mean, obviously, it's Simon and Garfunkel. They don't really. I mean, Hazy Shade of Winter is as rocking as they probably ever get, right? Which which is still right. which is a great song. I agree with you guys. That's 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 a great song too. But I just like how. Uh, it's it's like they're holding back with America, and I think that it just uh, the production with it, the vocals. I, I I'm not much of a lyrics guy, but I do like the lyrics of that. I, I like the imagery that he's coming up with, and so that is my favorite song. So I think that's to me is by far the best song in the album, um, and it makes the first side stronger. I, I agree. I probably like the second side a little bit better. The first side doesn't bother me as much. Um, because you're right, like it's almost like voices of old people you just skip over. You know, I, I listened to that a couple of times and I'm like, I'm wondering if there's some sort of overall message or theme or something like that. And I didn't, there's not, there's not. <laughs> I know. It's Simon and Garfunkel went to a, an old, you know, a retirement home in Reseda and just taped a bunch of people like talking in, in a day in February. That's all that is, right? So it's like, and it's oddly, it's kind of. I guess it's maybe not terribly oddly placed because it is, it, you know, between overs and, and old friends. Um, but it's just, it's a weird thing. It's just a waste of time as far. I don't, I don't know. But um, I think I, I do like the bookends themes. I think that that's very pretty. And oddly enough, I, I read this and I can't believe it, it came up this week because I didn't think about it, but it's also interesting that it came up this week that somebody in, in, in um, Wikipedia, it said that the, uh, that the guitar playing for the bookends theme was an acoustic piece once compared to the work of the Moody Blues, which I mean, I, I can see that a little bit. Sure. It just, it, it was just an acoustic piece. I, I don't, I'm not like, um, you know, acoustic yeah. is, it, I'm it always just a seems, little, 
sketch on Wikipedia. Like it's good to get some basics, but I've I've learned get your yeah. very basics from Wikipedia and then don't get many opi- opinions well, I, from them. And normally yeah. normally that's the stuff I pass by, but I'm like, "Oh, we're covering the Moody Blues this week." And it just I thought that was just, yeah. you know, kind of interesting. Um, but I, I reserve yeah. the right to, to to say that that could be true as I listen to more Moody Blues, but I do not see it based off our comparison points yeah. this week. Yeah, and there was also comparison. There was comparisons with Sergeant Pepper. You know, it's like to, to the point where where the, where the critic was saying, "Oh, you know, like this song here is you know at the zoo is like being for the benefit of Mr. Kite." You know, and it's like I'm like, all right, no, <laughs> so, yeah, too <laughs> so, many drugs. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I did like it. I think the more I, I agree with you, John, the more I listened to, I, I appreciated the first side a little bit more. The, the more I listened to it, um, Overs is kind of like a jazzy, like a jazzier kind of uh, uh, tune. Um, yeah, that grew on me the most of any track on the album. There's some yeah. good lines on that album too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so and save the life of my child. Anybody care to guess what that instrument is at the very beginning? I was wondering. That's, cause the, it, that's the Moog synthesizer, it isn't sure it? sure is. Yes, it, sure it is. Hell is. The Moog synthesizer. Nice. And it was, it's, credit, it's used with the assistance of Robert Moog. So I think he might I have actually helped them play. Had a note to bring that up too, Matt. And I'm so angry you stole that. Oh, from I'm those. sorry. It at the very end. But yes, go ahead. Yes. Sorry. So yeah. So there you go. We're getting get full circle again here. I actually 60s. can understand what the Moog synthesizer sounds like now. So I feel so proud of myself that I can place it now when I hear it. So well, it certainly took me by. I I can't say that I knew that it was the Moog synthesizer oh, when okay. it first gotcha. came on, but it certainly took me aback, right? Because you got the bookends theme, the very quiet guitar part, and then all of a sudden it's like, bow. Yeah, <laughs> it is jarring. It yes. has a distinct sound, though. It, it really sure does. does. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but no, overall, I liked it. Again, I, I, I really struggled to, 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 to decipher which of these albums I like better. Um, you I, mean I, of the Simon and Garfunkel? Of, uh, yes, of the Simon and mm-hmm. Garfunkel that we've covered mm-hmm. so far. I there's, there's not one that's really standing out at me more than the others. I think that they all have their really strong parts and their parts yeah. that I could do without. Um, so I, I'm not really hearing that here, but... Um, you know, but I, I I did like this, and I think that it does. Once I kind of had an understanding of what was going on in the first half, I didn't mind it as much. I think Old Friends is fine. It's kind of it's, you know, it's again, it's it's not one of my favorites, but um, there's not really anything on here I disliked other than Voices of Old People. That that that's not even really a song. So um, I would give it a recommend. And you're absolutely right, John. You don't have to spend much time with this because it's just it's crazy the amount of time at like how meticulous they were about this and how quick the album is over. Um, so. Yeah, I guess Paul Simon had a vision. This was, this was after Pet Sounds and all the layering. Is that where that influence oh, yeah. is from? Yeah, like everybody. Pet tried. Sounds was, six, like was that three, three years. Yeah, sixty six. Oh, yeah. This okay. is three years after. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everyone was like, "We need to do that." Well, remember Phil Spector was who was basically moving things from mono eventually into stereo. I mean, there's a whole collection of. Phil Spector stuff mono and then reimagined, you know, stereo. So, and he's working closely with the Beach Boys and other acts too. So it all kind of becomes incestuous in the 60s in some ways. That's why we keep hearing about the same people over and over again. Right. Yeah. And we haven't even mentioned, I mean, Mrs. Robinson. I mean, I would probably say, would you say? Yeah, how did we get this far without mentioning that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's their most well-known song, right? I mean, would would you say? Yeah. 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 You can't can't associate that song. Yeah, without uh, the yeah. movie and and Simon and Garfunkel, I, I would think people don't even listen to Simon and Garfunkel. No, they wrote mm-hmm. that song. So. Yeah, and the Lemonheads. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, your famous Lemonheads. Which yeah, is, lemonheads. I remember reading an article about how much Evan Dando just hated that version that they did for it, and basically the studio made them do it. So, um, Oh, really? Something like well, he, came, he came to Jesus eventually because they started getting royalty checks, like after the Lemonheads were no longer a thing, and then he gained an appreciation for the fact that those royalty checks were coming. Well, fun fun fact, I saw Evan Danho and to two other dudes who were the Lemonheads at the time play in a, in a, in a Hard Rock Hotel lobby in Orlando, and they played the entire <laughs> It's a Shame About Ray album, and they did not play Mrs. Robinson, which is the closing yeah. track of that record. So I oh, thought that, that was interesting. So, did you um, boo them as a result? I didn't, did, no. I, did I they have the guitar case open, or did it, was it closed while they were singing for the <laughs> They were outside the Hard Rock. Yeah, <laughs> outside the Hard Rock? No, it was... It was no, it was, in, it was in the lobby. It was just past, you walk oh, in the, the hotel. Oh, it's okay, it's a, gotcha. past the bar, and there's this little roped-off okay. area. And I'm like, this is interesting to do. I yeah, should they not. Do, I, do I, shows actually like, I actually like the Lemonheads. So I don't want to make fun of them too much. But but spoiler alert, they will not be in the 90s in terms of top 100 albums or yeah. the Rolling Stone bonus ones. So. Yeah. but um, And then, uh, yeah, so Mrs. Robinson, I almost feel like that song, I, it, I still really like it, but I, I don't think I like it as much as I should because it's just so over. Like, it's almost like I take it for granted as a song. You know what right. I mean? Like, I've heard it so much. It's mm-hmm. so ubiquitous. I get that. Um, and I think that that it takes also, away from it a little bit. It also doesn't really line up super well with the, the Graduate, too. Like, as the lyrics, when you listen to it, it kind of mm-hmm. seems like it should, but it doesn't lyrical content-wise, um, which mm-hmm. I always have found very funny because it's sort of like a nostalgic ballad about America to some degree and a, a, every woman, you know what I mean? And then yeah. it's not about this, like, seductress besides the name being shared, right? So it's it, that's always been an interesting um, conflict to me, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's also the first rock and roll song to win Record of the Year at the Grammys. Nice. Oh, okay. So I, I guess everything before that must have just been like show tunes and musicals and things like that. So um, they were but, or ja- jazz, jazz too. Yep. Or like Frank Sinatra crooning. Oh right, I forgot about that. Yeah, Elvis. But um, yeah, maybe you could look up some of the past. Elvis was rock and roll, wasn't he? Yeah, Elvis was rock. So I shouldn't say that, but yeah, like Frank Sinatra wouldn't be considered, and right. I'm sure he won one. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So we'll. I mean, I don't know if anybody, but yeah, but the one other thing I would say is that I kind of mentioned this earlier about how this was kind of the beginning of the end. And really the beginning of the end was probably when they were 15 and Paul Simon signed his own contract for, for, for an album. Well, isn't the next Garfunkel never got over that. He's still, he's still mad at Simon from something he did when he was 15. And I guess Simon, I guess, sorry, hang on. I guess Simon said something to him. Are you still mad at that? He goes, and and Garfunkel's response was, you're still the same person. So, um, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And isn't their last album called Bridge Over Troubled Water too, which is, is hilariously yeah. perfect so, as an allegory? Yeah. I think we'll probably go into their uh into the the dynamics there a little bit more with that record because we we are going to cover that um in a couple weeks. Uh but this one it, it, they wrote see this is another thing I'm not sure I totally agree with, with with what I read, but there was some indication that they were abandoning the harmonies and and so this well, album was more focused on the on like the in, well it was more of an individual, like either Simon or Garfunkel taking the lead, and then the harmony would take more of a backseat as compared to their previous records or their previous well, songs. Let's, uh, so let's save that comparison for once we've heard all four, because I feel like, okay. you know, it, it, that's a good place for it. And I feel like we have a lot to still cover with the Moody Blues and the band. So that sounds like something we can all listen for in the fourth album. 
Fair enough. Okay. So, all right. So well, who's thanks, next? I, I, yeah, no problem. I, I'm confused. Who's next here? I'm next. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am doing the Moody Blues. And in the opening track, you heard Tuesday Afternoon, sometimes called Forever Afternoon. And now you're going to hear Nights in White Satin, which is off the track of Night. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send we're back if that wasn't confusing enough for you wait until i get into (laughs) the creation of this album and the band Um, we are covering moody blues Uh, the album is called days of future past from 1967 it's currently 47 on besteveralbums.com moody blues was an english band that started in birmingham in 1964 and the original members of the band are mike pinder ray thomas denny lane Graham Edge and Clint Warwick. Mike Pinder and Ray Thomas were formerly in two other bands together before this one. At this time, they were playing R&B and they were the house band for the Carlton Ballroom. And that's when they first started using the Moody Blues as a band name as well. The band obtained management through a company called Ridge Pride and leased their recordings to Decca Records. They released a single called Steal Your Heart Away, which did not chart. They then released their second single in 1964 called Go Now. That single went number one in Britain and number 10 in the United States. Then they signed directly with DECA. Is that the DECA that we keep hearing about over and over again? Because it's come up a couple different times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a big label in in Britain. I'm assuming it's the same. I believe the label's called London Records in the United States. Their debut album was released in 1965 and was titled Magnificent Moody's. After that, they released some more singles that only did minorly well in the UK. In 1966, Warwick and Lane left the group and they released some more singles and reformed in November of 1966 with John Lodge and Justin Hayward. Two of, the, two of the original members left and then two other guys went in and Ray Thomas and Mike Pinder actually knew John Lodge from before and offered, uh, wanted him to be in the band, but he went to college instead. And then Hayward, I think they also knew him and both of them are, have been in the Moody Blues for the, basically the entirety of their existence at this point, um, up to present day. At this time, they had some success with some of their songs in, in Belgium and France, so they were touring mainland Europe mostly because they weren't as successful in the UK but they could still make a good living playing kind of the R&B stuff along with their original music in Europe so around this time they decided to stop covering R&B songs and switch to performing their own material this revamped version of the Moody Blues released a single in May of 1967 and this also failed to chart in the UK but gave a hint of the sound to come I mean as you can see, they weren't really successful out of the gate for a while. It's not like one of these bands that, you know, were flashing the pans or or just had immediate success. They really kind of were playing for a long time without too much of a following. This new sound that they switched to featured 
Mike Pinder's Mellotron, um, the flute also became a more prominent instrument played by Ray Thomas. So now I'm going on a little little side side uh, divergence here. What is a Mellotron? Well, it looks like a little piano, and it's and you push keys that play different sounds that were recorded on tape. It's actually an analog sampler, and it was created in Birmingham in 1963. So it generates its sound using analog samples recorded on audio tape rather than digital samples. So you push the different keys and the tape runs through the machine and depending on where it is in the in the spool you make different sounds with the keys. So it's not like a piano in that way. It's really just like pushing keys to make different sample sounds. It's like the uh, the ultimate instrument in prog rock is what I always think of the, the Mellotron yes. as because they love it. So. Yeah. And there's some good videos on YouTube actually that I saw of the mellow people playing the Mellotron explaining how it works and what Do it does. Big, go ahead, John. Uh, you're going in one direction, so I'll let you finish. Matt. I was just going to say, it's the, it's the beginning of Strawberry Fields. If you know that Strawberry Fields by the yep. Beatles, that's the that Mellotron's yep. at in the beginning. And there's another famous song we've covered in a previous episode that has the Mellotron all over it, played yes, I, by Rick Wakeman from Yes. Do you know that one, Matt? Was that the Pretty Things? Nope. <laughs> wait, no. wait, no, album we covered it? We, didn't cover, we haven't covered a Yes album. It wasn't a Yes No, album. but Rick Wakeman from Yes played the Mellotron on a very famous song we've covered. Oh, God. It would be Space Oddity by David Bowie. That's the oh, that okay. creates the Space Odyssey. Yep. yep. So go ahead. Yep. And the Mellotron is used extensively on Days of Future Past that we're talking about today. As, as Matt pointed out, it's also on Strawberry Fields Forever. And as John said, it's on Space Oddity. It's also used by King Crimson, um, mm-hmm. who we'll be talking about in a few you know future episodes it's also been used on a rolling stones album that we aren't going to be talking about uh their man- satanic majesty's request it's on uh matt's beloved genesis early genesis albums the mm-hmm. mellotron yeah it's on and we- i can't wait for those and, episodes. and and more great albums that matt likes yeah. too yeah yep it's on i'm just wait- gonna get me a hey guys <laughs> early christmas present i would yep. love a mellotron yep, yep. It's on Oasis's Wonderwall. And oh, it's on, wow. It's wow. on uh, Radiohead's OK Computer. Yes, it definitely well. is on OK Computer. I knew that without so, even having to listen to it. Yeah. I thought Matt would appreciate that. Those, those bands are OK. Yeah, as well as a lot of other. Those are the more famous ones. But um, So this brings us uh, you know, back to the Moody Blues, back on track. Uh, this brings us up to the current time period of the album Days of Future Past. Their contract with Decca Records was about to expire, and they owed thousands of pounds to the label. Their second planned album <laughs> probably, had never Probably the out. ones that they had to recover from that deal they cut with the Rolling Stones, where, remember, they had to give them, like, a huge royalty rate to sign them, if you remember from last mm, that's week? That's right, yeah. A couple weeks ago, yeah, so... Yep. So they made a deal with the label to make a rock version of Antonin Dvorak's New World Symphony mm-hmm. to promote the company's new Duramic stereo sound audio format. So I guess the Duramic part is more of like a, a brand label um, for the for the company. Um, side note, Antonin Dvorak was a Czech composer and New World Symphony came out in 1893. I did listen to a little of that. Um, that album was never completed. They never even made that album uh, with the New World Symphony. However, they convinced the composer of that project, Peter Knight, who was responsible for the orchestral arrangements, to collaborate with them using their original material. And this resulting hybrid concept album was 
Days of Future Past, and it was released November 10th of 1967. It peaked at number 27 on the UK charts, and five years later, it reached number three on Billboard charts. Wow. Yeah, so this is really an album that people, I guess, found over time and then slowly, very slowly gained ground, uh, at least in American. Was there any other... Because that seems like to go pretty high in a very long period of time. So that means it's cutting out, you know, newer stuff. Was there anything in particular? It wasn't like used in a movie or anything like that. Was there any other reason for the? Not that I just... can. T- not that I read. Wow. Um, yeah, that's impressive. Kind of similar to the David Bowie origin story when you think about it. Like there was there, it had some success, and then like three years later, it blew up. There were some re-releases of the album um, that I'll get to, but I think that helped as well. The concept of the album itself, as you can tell by the titles of the songs, is that it takes place over the course of a single day. It used the, quote, London... Oh, okay. <laughs> you, used... you didn't pick that up, based on the song. <laughs> oh, He's boy. not a John, lyrics guy. John, I, I'm, read. A, I'm, not a, I'm not a lyrics but guy the or a song the title songs. guy. All right, I know. Yeah. I, I was kidding, John. I was kidding. <laughs> okay, okay. Thank God. All right, so... Continue. I'm sorry. I was going to, yeah. It used the quote London Festival Orchestra, which is a name they just made up for the collection of classical <laughs> musicians under the DECA label that played on this. And then they added London to sound fancier. So it really wasn't, there was an actual orchestra. Yep. The drummer Graham Edge wrote the opening and closing poems, which were recited by Mike Pinder. And however, the orchestra and the group never actually performed together when producing the album. Mm. So the band would play a particular song or part, and then they would send it over to Peter Knight, who would compose an orchestral uh, linking portion. That's quote, which the London Festival Orchestra would then perform. Tony Clark produced the album and continued working with the Moody Blues for the next 11 years. Sometimes Tony Clark is known as the sixth Moody. Engineer (laughs) Derek Varnels is also heavily credited with creating their early studio sound. The two singles from the album are Nights in White and Satin and Tuesday Afternoon. Um, Nights only made it to number 19 in early 1968 on the UK singles chart, and Tuesday didn't chart at all. And later reissues in the 70s charted higher in the UK. In the US, Tuesday Afternoon peaked at 24 on the Billboard chart upon release, and then Nights didn't even make it into the top 168. It only peaked at number two on a 1972 re-release. And finally, um, so that brings us up to this album. I'm not going to go into their history after the fact, um, even though this is the only Moody Blues album we're going to be covering. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018. This is basically cited as an early example or one of the earliest examples of prog rock or progressive rock. And it's known, this album is known for its fusion of classical and, and rock music. So, John, after hearing this album, are you, are you now the seventh Moody on this? <laughs> this? This was a fascinating listen because I listened to this three times. And the first time I listened to it was basically a WTF reaction. Like I was not prepared for this because yes, um, I know some I know some Moody Blues and I even know some Moody Blues on this album. And I still wasn't able to quite contextualize what this is. So the first time I listened to it, especially the first half of the album, I was very lukewarm on it. And then I listened to it a second time. And especially the second half of the album really grew on me to the point where I would say that I liked it. By the third time I listened to it, I would say it had moved into the recommend category for me. Um, And it really, it's proto-prog rock for sure. Um, 
the longer compositions don't seem overly long to me. Um, that Mellotron is, I had to look up what it was because it's all over the album. Um, the flute yep. is also all over the album. Um, it, because there's an orchestra in it, there's just a lot of sounds going on. Um, and trying to place each of the sounds requires multiple listens, but it's an enjoyable um, listen. And yeah, it was, I, I really liked it. And it really came out of left field for me because it was, it's, it's very unlike anything we've covered so far. Um, but it ended up being in a very pleasant way for me. And the songs had a, had a way of really getting stuck in my head for long periods of time, especially Tuesday afternoon. Really like, I don't know what it was about that chorus that like, you know, the drawn out, like, Tuesday afternoon and then the transition into the like harder well-produced I I don't know how I think you just have to listen to it but the transitions I thought were really good on a lot of the songs and and I ended up liking this album quite a bit so um I'm interested to hear what you guys think about it because I can add more but I don't want to take up too much time I love this album this is great I knew you this is great um and I, I, I have similar reactions to you, John, um, in that the, it was definitely surprising, right? So I, I thought the first track is pretty much all orchestra or, you know, it's, it's, yes. it's, it's like a classical piece of music. And I was like, okay. And real over-the-top orchestra, like yes. a Disney movie type orchestra. Yeah, like a yeah. soundtrack to a movie almost. Yes. yes. Or something. Yeah, and that's that's a great that – I was going to say that because this it sounds like a lot of – this could be a part of a movie soundtrack, you know. Um, like, the, like the music itself is telling the story, you know, without right. any, any words or lyrical content. Um, so – I, you know, and, and I could also tell that it seemed like almost like an overture because I could tell, right. um, I could hear the only song I knew on this was Nights in White Satin, and you can hear parts of that. So they're actually in the beginning, they're kind of doing a quick little, you know, they're giving you snippets at, of what's to come later on in the record. So I was like, oh, okay. It's kind of like Tommy, right? When you listen to Overture on Tommy, it's like, you know, going through yep. different parts. And then I was just surprised that they stayed with the orchestra throughout the whole album, right? Um, but when I saw them kind of all of a sudden, you know, I, uh, you know, kind of um, interplaying more pop music, more rock music with that, I kind of I, I got a better understanding of what they were going for. And I really liked it. I think it's fascinating, Josh, that you say that the um, that the band would do their part, you know, they do their part of the song. And then they and then the orchestra was layered on top of that. So it's done in two different rooms and you put them together and it's it, it's it's very seamless, like the transition from one part to the other. I love that prog nature of stuff. There's some really cool parts and, you know, that they that takes you in different directions and then it brings you somewhere else. And they're all really cool. They're really intricate. The melody. Are, are, are great um, and it's just it's a very interesting listen um, and I probably would agree John I think the second half is better is a, is a stronger half um, you know with the afternoon and evening in particular I loved peak hour though that, that was like the, the second part of the lunch break peak hour um, I, I really like that part but this is it's and it's interesting too because there were times I'd listen to this and I was I would lose track of what track number I was on, you know, because of, and I would, and it wasn't until later when I really started as I was listening and watching the, like seeing where the songs changed from the, uh, you know, on Spotify, I was just intrigued to say, oh, this is all one song. Cause it, it's just the entire album I, blends together I into one and big I, piece. And I did the same thing, Matt, but then I realized that when you look at what the compositions are, cause 
what it is is each of the seven compositions is supposed to be a part of the day from the morning until the night. And you can kind of, when you see what part of the day it is, the music starts to sound like that part of the day. That's true. Um, And that was kind of how, by the third time I listened, I was able to do it based on, oh, okay, so now it's gone from the dawn into the morning, and now the morning into the lunch break. And there is a subtlety to it that you're like, Mm -hmm. hmm, okay, I got it. Yeah. No, that's very true. And, um, but I, yeah, this is great. I was very surprised at how much I like, at, at how much I like this, that I've never heard this before. You know, I, I have friends, you know, that are in, into Prague and stuff and how this, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if anybody, this, I, I would assume that nobody's, uh, come across this before in my circle because I'm sure I would have heard it, but, um, I, I really like this. This was great. Yeah. They, I, am not as high on this album as you guys are but i i appreciate what it was trying to do i mean calling this a rock album is is generous at best it's really like like you said it's it's really classical music and i i mean i'll do credit to peter knight because he's like doing the orchestra which is probably more than half of the album involved so he's he's as much involved at this moody blues record as as they are and i read a little bit like when they you know when they would tour um you know, later on with this album, they would bring an orchestra to tour with them. Cause how could you play this otherwise really, um, on tour? Um, uh, I, I like what they were trying to do. I didn't find myself, uh, loving or revisiting it much. Um, I think I don't like that combination of classical and the rock folk that they put into it. I'd rather have them separate. I mean, I think we've discussed this before a little bit about the combination that, that some of these albums try and do, um, and whether or not they succeed for me, um, is debatable. I feel like the, I just don't know for me. I don't know if it, it really works for me having them together. I don't, I don't feel like it, it gives me a lot. I'd rather just listen to them separately. Ultimately. Mm. Um, I do like the complexity of the album though. I like, like you said, the different, um, sound effects in the feel you get as you progress throughout the day. When you get to that lunch break, it's like, it feeling, it feels like people are going to and from work or something. There's like kind of a hustle and bustle to it. And, I think the there's afternoon... a lot of sound effects too. Yes, like I remember yeah. like train whistles and stuff in the background. Yeah, or yeah. almost like traffic or something maybe. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I think the afternoon is probably the most interesting song on the album for me, and and that's where I I got the Mellotron. Um, I picked that up as well when I was trying to listen for that. But can you imagine the marketing department on this album like trying to <laughs> trying to figure out how to sell this album to people because i can't even imagine yeah it's like a it's it's a combination of rock music and <laughs> classical yeah, I, I, this for i love albums though that that like you look at it you go this was released in 1967 and yeah. trying to it's like when we did the stooges album or when matt and i did that monks album <laughs> like it's certain albums in the 60s just come out of nowhere and mm-hmm. you can see that they're going to be growers because they're just like incomprehensible as like when they were recorded they sound of another era to some degree right and and and, and that's what's funny about this. To some degree, it sounds like an older album than it is. And in some ways, it sounds like it should be right in, in the early to mid-70s prog rock heyday. Um, and 
And I think, Josh, I disagree with you in my personal take in that I don't think I would want to listen to either of the parts of this separate, but mm. together it enhances the two of them completely. I think the interplay is what really makes both pieces. And on their own, I don't know if I would have had as much interest. Yeah, It'd be I, very different. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is, in general, not this, like, specifically. I think I'd rather have classical by itself and, and mm -hmm. rock music by itself, not necessarily the parts of this album separately. But, um, yeah, gotcha. I, I get what you're saying. Well, the thing that's interesting about this, too, is because you're right. It, if, you, if you look back on it and say, oh, this came out in, you know, the late 60s, that's kind of that's crazy. Nothing sounded like this. But, man, I don't know if anything sounded like this since then. Like, this is the, 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 the combination, because there's other music that, you, that well, you might listen to, you might be aware of, that has the orchestra. But to this degree, the orchestra that's that dominant throughout the entire album, it's, it's real. I think that's really unique. Am I? Am I? Can you think of anything else that's that's the that orca orchestra? I mean, the Metallica album that they did with the the Trans Siberian no, Orchestra. You're thinking you're thinking orchestra though, and you have to kind of I think go with what prog rock became, which is this sort of bending of genres and experimentation. Because I I right. would argue that to some degree this is like a this birth. I mean, you're a big Radiohead guy, Matt, and as I was listening to this album, I was like. God, Radiohead must have listened to this album quite a bit because a lot of what Radiohead goes for in OK Computer, even down to the Mellotron, a lot of the concept of that is similar to like what this is going for. It may not sound the same, but it's it's birthed of the same idea, right? And, well, and the, like yeah, to me, yeah. they're very similar in terms of the 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 idea and the process. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I would agree with that. I, I'm talking more about the sonic nature of the or the, the heavy orchestra that's throughout the entire it's not just one song right. it's not just like the beginning it's it's the entire album and i would probably say that there's there's as much if not more of that than there is anything else musically yes on this agree. it's 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 everywhere here um and i don't know if i know of another album that's like because yes you have like Elton John did the concert in Australia with the with the the, the london symphony orchestra like you have artists that do albums with orchestras but as a live performance, but for an album, a studio album, this is, this is unique in that way. But you're right, John, there's like Did the progression of certain things. It's definitely, it's, it's definitely there with that prog progginess. And I love that and, stuff, which is why I love as, this album. As much as we talk about the Beatles influencing everybody, which they did, mm -hmm. um, I feel like this would have had to have been on the radar for the Beatles in 1968 mm. and you know 1969 with some of the stuff they ended up doing maybe not putting an orchestra in but i just see a lot of people delving into this album and and taking pieces i mean the uh, the beach brian wilson right you know i'm sure could listen to this and certainly you know the the early you know bowie and genesis and stuff i mean they all to some degree I could see being influenced by this. Yeah, the Beatles, it's kind of interesting because if this comes out in late 67, this is right at the tail end of the Beatles because the next album that the Beatles did was the White Album, so which was not really... I mean, there's some songs on that, like Happiness is a Warm Gun is kind of like a like well, three like different Well, like A Day in the together. Life. But A Day, a day in the Life was kind of... Yeah, but John, the day in life was before this. Sergeant Pepper was, was in '67. It? Yeah, like August gotcha. of '67. So, okay. Um, so that's what I'm saying. Like well, this, well, it I, I don't know the if same this, time. Same they would have been. Yeah, they would have been interested in this, sure. But I don't know if I hear future Beatles rec albums 
taking cues from this, if that makes sense. Right. So. No, I, but it's like at around the same time. So they must have been processing the same stuff because oh, it's yeah, right sure. around the same right. time. That's what's interesting about it. Because as mm-hmm. I, as I listen to it, I'm like, this is like a day in the life Beatles to some degree. Yeah. So yeah. That's it's cool. also just, yeah. go ahead, Josh. I was going to say the actual moody blues parts on this album are almost like folk, you know, it's a, it's a little like Fairport convention or like British folk in some way too. It's not even like hard. I mean, there is some like hard, harder guitar parts, but there's not really, I mean, I guess it, it works well, with the classical more, but like a whiter shade of pale by Procol Harum is kind of like this too. You know, that song. Uh, yes. Yes. I think so. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like I was thinking of what I was really fascinating about this album was I was thinking about all the different things that were spawned near it, around it and from it. And that was where um, just there was I wrote down like I jotted down like all these songs that it reminded me of. And I could mm. keep going. I don't want to keep doing that. But that's yeah, it's fascinating. No, it's also interesting. It says that it was record. It was recorded. Uh, the last day was recorded uh, November third, nineteen sixty-seven, and released on November tenth, nineteen sixty-seven. Oh, Is that possible know, to release like a week bad. after you finished recording and you released the album? Probably not. That's crazy, especially with something this complicated. But anyway, yeah. I mean, this is certainly an an outlier or a, a very unique album that's different from everything we've listened to up to this point. And as far as I know about the Moody Blues, because I have a couple relatives who love the Moody Blues, it doesn't sound a ton like later Moody Blues either. It's not in my wildest dreams. Interesting. No, that song. Remember that song from the eighties? That's how I knew them for a while. Yeah, well, that's what. Like we said, we've often said the eighties is when just about everybody from the sixties cashed out by like you know doing a different version of themselves. Yeah, that was like right? an MTV yeah. staple for a while. I think that was. I like so that. So do song. they? They just continue to. Uh, incorporate classical music into their rock album? Is that kind of their thing? Not, not really. They, oh, okay. they have a very different sound all through the 70s and the 80s. Um, there's elements, but I, I, you don't think of the Moody Blues as like a prog rock band. At least I don't when I think of their stuff from the 70s. And I'm fairly... Fr- it's funny. I'm, I'm more familiar with their stuff from the 70s than I am of their 60s stuff. Besides gotcha. Nights in White Satin. Gotcha, gotcha. I'd be remiss and not mentioning too that uh the title days of future past is is also uh later on a, a famous x-men storyline in comics so chris claremont must have been a, a big uh moody blues fan to take that so yeah some t- if you're trying to research this album you have to get through the x-men stuff first because that'll pop up before this it even, yeah it even says on wikipedia did you mean days of future past x-men go here <laughs> uh google yeah uh, um, sounds like you guys were you're high on this though and yeah uh, it's definitely worth a listen because it's unlike anything we've listened to it's not boring or uh, not even you know off-putting or anything like that in my opinion if if you like um if you like your music not as much straight ahead you're really gonna like this if you're someone who likes your music straight ahead it might be a lot to chew on but um if you're willing to give it a try i think it's definitely an album you need to listen to a couple times even if that's not your mo I mean, it's certainly melodic, you know, it's, there's nothing harsh in here. There's nothing that's like kind of off-putting or kind of like too avant-garde, you know? So even if it's some, you know, so it's, 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 it's in that regard, it's a fairly easy list and it's classical music too. And, and it's good. It's pretty good classical music at that. So it's like, it's, it's not a difficult listen. Um, It's, it's different, but it's not difficult. All right, John. So it sounds like the band next with the band talking about the band. 
it's funny because we're going to talk about the band again in a couple weeks. So I'm probably going to do a little bit more of a sparse um, bio here because a lot of what I'll be talking about in the band's bio will overlap with uh, the next album we covered, which will be the self-titled album by the band, which is their second album. We'll be covering their first album, Music from Big Pink, today. Ho oh, John, John, John. You forgot to put the music in again. What's going on with this guy? Anyway, in the opening montage, you had chest fever, and now you're going to hear the weight. He just grinned and shook my hand. No was all he said. Take a load off, Fanny. Take a load for free. Take a load off, Fanny. And you put the load right on right on me. So let's go through the basics of the band. The band are sort of known as a musician and a critics band, uh, more so than they were a uh, well-selling band. They kind of have the reputation of being a bigger band than their sales would make you think that they were. Um, They sold relatively well, especially in the, the mid to late 70s, but the 60s work and the 70s work that's considered sort of their peak work was not great selling and not overwhelmingly high charting either. But critics and musicians themselves always loved uh, the band. Um, so there are four Canadians and one American. Uh, they are formed in Toronto in 19... Uh, well, they were basically formed as the band in 1967. That's where they became the band and... Uh, there's a lot of stories about how they became the band. They, they were Bob, probably, and this is the most important thing to know about them, they were the backing band for Bob Dylan when he went electric. And thus they were sort of offhandedly called the band over and over again. They, they wanted to be called either the Honkies or the Crackers, but their uh, <laughs> record label did not want either of those to go. They actually played as the label. Honkies and Crackers a couple times, and then they basically <laughs> said no. So they just started being called the band. At first they hated it, but then later they grew to like it because they thought it was sort of preposterously like ostentatious, but also basic. So, but they've been playing together for a long time. Um, They were, their origin story is really actually very fascinating. I'll go into some of the interesting parts. Uh, They start as a, they start as a backing band for a gentleman by the name of Ronnie Hawkins, and his backing band was known as the Hawks. And what Ronnie Hawk Ronnie Hawkins is often in the research I'm doing referred to as Canada's Elvis. So to get an idea of Ronnie Hawkins' general ethos, he's he's Canada's Elvis. And uh, what he was known for doing was he was known for any time there was another band that was getting any sort of acclaim or esteem, he would go in and he would hire away <laughs> whoever the best musicians were in those bands. So um, he started with uh, Lee Von Helm, who, and, and the, the thing to know about the band, the band, the band, is that they all play a bunch of different instruments. So Lee Von Helm plays the drums, has vocals on tracks, plays the mandolin and the guitar. So he's in Hawkins' original band, 
And then over the years, he plucks Rick Danko, who's the bassist and the fiddle player for the band and also one of their singers. He plucks Robbie Robertson, who's the lead guitarist and a vocalist for the band. And he plucks uh, Richard Manuel, who's the keyboardist and drummer and another singer for the band. Um, The only person that he did not pluck initially was a gentleman by the name of Garth Hudson, who was the saxophone player, the accordion player, and the keyboard player for the band. So Hudson knew all these guys, but he had really no interest in joining uh, a band as like a full-time profession. He looked at playing music as a hobby, and he had an undergraduate degree in college, which, you know, at that time in the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's important to remember, these guys are all about 15 to 18 years old. That was what was fascinating to me is yeah. they're talking about this in like wow. 1959, right? And you're like, holy crap, like 1959, like – these guys must be much older than I think, but no, most of them are between the ages of 15 and 18 at this point. So Hudson, you know, has his under, he's one of the older members. He has his undergraduate degree, which is rare in that era. And he wanted to be a music teacher. So he keeps saying no, he keeps saying no to be brought in. And then eventually he decides he's going to join the Hawks uh, if they pay him $10 a week in salary to sort of simulate, you know, the salary he would have gotten as a teacher. He would be considered the music theory expert of the band, and they needed to purchase him a brand new Lowry organ. And Hudson is well known as a really good organist, and and even Ronnie Hawkins, who had a rep for being a little bit of a James Brown-level taskmaster as like a band leader, he agreed to all this. And so, basically, he gets brought in to the band. Uh, As you might imagine from how I described Mr. Hawkins, they split with him in 1963 due to just a lot of things. He had a lot of rules. They wanted to play their own music. They weren't allowed to smoke pot. They weren't allowed to bring their girlfriends to performances. They had all-night rehearsals. They had fines. A lot like how we talked about James Brown as a band leader. So they split. Uh, The good news, as Robbie Robertson would say later, is they became like a really tight unit because of the demand. So it's like the best of both worlds. They benefited from sort of this regimented approach, but then they were able to break away from it and do their own thing. So after they break away from Hawkins, they're kind of a fivesome. They decide to become what's referred to, I learned a word, a sextent, not tent where people have sex, a a six-person band, a sex tent, and that is where uh, Jerry Penfound comes in and sacks. Uh, At around this time, they're going to be a pretty famous musician by the name of Sonny Boy Williamson in the blues and R&B world. They're going to be his backing band, but right as they're about to uh, do that, he dies, unfortunately. So they they then later uh, are playing, and a couple of them, Hellman Robertson most notably, Um, are playing with Bob Dylan, who invites the two of them to be his backing band on the Electric albums. Uh, Hellman Robertson said, we'd be happy to, but we're very close to our band. And they basically said to them, you either have to hire us all or hire none of us. So Dylan decides to hire all of them. Um, One of the funny things, there's and I'll save some of the stories about how Dylan found out about the band and you know, they moving to Saugerties, New York and making the basement tapes. We'll kind of get into that later because we're going to do the basement tapes in a bonus episode. So 
I want to save a little context there for that time. Uh, and also it plays a lot more into the second album um, as well as this one. But uh, I, one of the things that I thought was really funny is that it's mentioned quite a bit. The band really had no idea that like Bob Dylan by 1967 had become a huge act. They still thought of him as sort of a folk <laughs> act, you know, and a protest singer. So think like um, th they were still thinking of him at the Woody Guthrie, Joan Baez level, like well known, but not, you know, Bob Dylan. Right. And so they go out on tour with him and the band is used to playing for these very upbeat Americana, you know, <laughs> blues, just very raucous people wanting to have fun type, you know, rockabilly, right, was what they did before, before they went into this. And they go out with Dylan and he's playing, you know, electric music in front of a bunch of folk fans who just hate uh. everything he's doing. And also Dylan during this time was on amphetamines pretty much the whole time. So he was apparently just a real miserable prick to be around. Uh, it's so bad that the band... Uh, Helm, uh, Levon Helm is so bothered. He actually quits it and goes and works on an oil rig about halfway <laughs> no. through because he's just like, I can't do this anymore, you know? Wow. And the rest of the band basically said it kind of sucked the fun out of it because they said everywhere they went, they would just be booed and have stuff thrown at them. And um, they, it just was, Dylan going electric was a whole thing that just was not well received. So after that, everybody's kind of done with that. But uh, Dylan sort of has the motorcycle accident that we talked about way, way back in time in, I believe, our very first episode, if I remember correctly, yeah. right? Yeah, we covered John that's, Wesley Harding. Yeah, because yep. he had the accident right before that. Or, well, that was the album that came out after the uh, motorcycle You got accident. it. So he goes into seclusion. At that point, he wasn't really enamored with the band outside of a couple members, but he gets convinced to bring them uh, up to the Saugerties Woodstock area, and they rent a house known as Big Pink, 56 Parnassus Lane to be exact. And that is when they initially start by recording the basement tapes up there, which would be bootlegged and then released proper in the mid-70s. But then after doing that, they then make this album, Music from Big Pink. And they make it in two weeks, which is a fascinating turnaround time to give you an idea of how they were used to playing. Dylan was originally going to sing on this album, but then he realized if he sang on it, it would sort of take away from the band as their own act. And also the band, it seems like every member of the band sings on this album as well. So he that. instead, yeah. yep. And he uh, instead uh, gives the cover art for the band. So um, when you look at the album, that's actually a piece of art from Bob Dylan. Um, and I think we can probably leave it there. The, the weight, um, was the single. It, uh, only hit 63 in the U S later when it was used in easy rider, it would get up to, it would get up a little higher and the album never peaked above number 30 though, ever. Um, three of the songs on the album, this wheels on fire, tears of rage, and I shall be released were Dylan songs. And that was the first three songs they recorded. Half of the album was recorded in big pink. And half of it was recorded later in L.A. Um, so uh, when I say uh, later, it was five songs. So In a Station, mm -hmm. To Kingdom Come, Lonesome Susie, Long Black Veil, which is a cover and I always think of as a Johnny Cash song, and I Shall Be Released um, are the five songs that were recorded in L.A. later. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is the album was designed to sound like the jam sessions that the band did, um, but it was also carefully crafted. So they were going for like a really good sounding album that was loose enough to seem like a jam session. And the lyrical themes of the album, according to the members of the band, are rural life, family, and spiritual 
and faith-related issues, which do come up quite a bit in the lyrics. All right, so that is uh, the context for Music from the Big Pink by the band. Matt, what's your take? God, I love the band. I, it, I, I And I didn't know this album very well at all. I mean, I, I, I certainly knew The Weight, which is just a classic song, um, yeah. one of my favorite songs from the 60s, just fantastic. And I, But I've, I've known a lot about them. Um, I've heard, you know, I have the basement tapes. I have listened to some of their albums before, but it's not like I really sat down to, you know, listen to it often. But even the stuff that the band does that I'm not a huge fan of, I still really love. They just have such a great sound. Um, they got, it's one of these unique things where they have three really strong lead singers. You know, you've got, you know, Danko, uh, Manuel, uh, Richard Manuel, and, uh, 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 leave on helm, right? And so they they usually are trading off, or they're harmonizing, and they all have, particularly Manuel and um, and Le- and uh, Rick Danko, very distinct voices mm-hmm. that I could see being off putting for some people because it's not like a traditional mm-hmm. singing, you know, like even for a rock star, it's it, they're it's different, and I could see people being off put by that, um, almost almost disharmony in some in some cases. It almost sounds like they're not in tune together, um. But I I think that their overall sound is great. This is 1968. I mean, this is early Americana. I mean, early Americana. It's like Americana roots rock type stuff that um that really uh, that influenced a lot of people. So John, when you say that this is like kind of a an artist's band, you know, um, or a critics band, I that's definitely oh, true. Yeah, this it's is not like, like a. Yep. Yeah, it's a ton of artists' favorite album or in their top five favorite albums. Yep. Yes. So I I, I would say, having said all that, I I don't think I'm as high on them as as some other people when they say that this is like one of the best rock albums of all time. I mean, I'm not going there. I I like the band, with the exception of a couple of songs that really stand out, and certainly um, The Weight is one of them. I just like them as an overall sound. I really think that what they just, they're just a cool cool band and i think that there were some fun um surprises on here i thought chest fever was a cool ass song with that org i mean like there's hard organ on here carth hudson playing the organ is a is a distinct sound yeah, as chest well. fever is my favorite yeah. song on the whole album yep yeah for sure. that's yeah that's great um and i i like the covers you know um the, the, it's it, long black veil definitely is i think of that certainly as a johnny cash song as well but i think that they do that well um i like this the more i listen to it um you know uh it's it's i think the i think i like it when they pick up a little bit more um i think like like agreed uh, caledonia mission and um i think we can talk kind of stand out as really good you know kind of more upbeat songs but um they're just a cool ass band that their story is tragic i'm sure we'll get to some more stuff later on because they certainly had their issues a lot of early deaths but um it's just a very unique band with a very distinct sound as soon as you hear a band song you'd like this is the band right whether you love it or not it's it you can definitely tell it's them and um it's it's a cool listen. I'm glad I I'm glad I listened to this more and got to know these songs a little bit more uh, better than um, than maybe I have listened to some of their stuff in the past. But man, they're just cool as shit. High praise. All right, my Josh. Ha- my hot take is uh, maybe they should have just stayed a backing band because, like Matt said, and I'm glad he pointed it out, I found whoever was singing or depending on who was singing distracting to the point of like me not enjoying the album. Um, I, I, I really did not like the guy, I guess it was one or two guys that sing off, you know, kind of in a higher pitched voice or 
like an off key type of way, like Matt was saying. Um, That's exactly the two that Matt mentioned. Yeah, <laughs> Manuel it's, it's, it's Danko and Manuel. I mean, Levon, yeah. Levon does the yep, lead Danko for the and weight, Manuel, and it's, or, I'm sorry, yeah, Levon Helm does the lead for the weight, and he's he's really not on this album too much as a lead singer. It's more the other two, but um, it's he's got more of a traditional, I yes. think, an easier. Voice. And, and that's clear because he is a better singer than both of those other guys. And <laughs> well, wish, and he sings up on Cripple Creek too, which yeah, is the other which song. Which is I another think awesome yeah. song. Uh, I guess I, knowing that, I wish Lee Von Helm was on this, uh, singing on this album more because I think I would have enjoyed it more. Um, I really liked the music when I was trying to put the vocals out of, out of my mind, and I like that Americana vibe that they give off. Um, I like Long Black Veil quite a bit in Caledonia Mission too and and like you said there's a lot of organ in this and and mm -hmm. I don't think we've gotten as much organ up to this point as we have on this album and, and that's so that, why they paid the man ten dollars a week yeah <laughs> so that was a nice that was a nice change of pace but I, I'll be interested to see what the other albums that we listen to with them come from if I'm still annoyed by by the singing or if if it mixes better or, you know just um flows better for me i do like a uh, chest fever as well because they got some really great guitar parts on that as well mixed with the organ and yeah the weight is a classic i don't know how you couldn't uh um, like that song i think the back half of the album is better than the front half mm -hmm. um i like those songs more but yeah so kind of a mixed review for me um just because of the sing the vocals mostly um, yeah so i'm gonna give a series of hot takes right here um the band to me has always been what i call a homework band which is that i can appreciate all of what makes the band great while not particularly enjoying the product that they make um and to a that. larger extent that is my take on a lot of americana to begin with um not all, but a lot. So the band to me are a little bit of a homework project band. And this album is probably as good an illustration of that as comes down the road. Um, Chess Fever is a fantastic song. And The Weight, as has been mentioned, is a classic. I did like uh, uh, Caledonia Mission as well. Uh, but there's a lot of tracks on this that seem much longer than their runtime. Um, the jamminess hmm. of it is really going to appeal to certain people. It it doesn't for me. It's just the the doors are blowing off of the the stuff in a way that it's it, that sort. It, there's not. Um, I remember that uh, this album's pretty much universally loved. But as I was researching it, there was a guy Robert Christgau from the Village Voice who said. Uh, I, I'm going to try to pull up the quote right here as we're talking because I thought it was such a good description of how he would. He said, "It's a country soul feeling without imitating the realness of it and not having any human roughness around the edges. It's a technically solid album that can be morose and boring to listen to at times." And hmm. I think that's a little rough the back end of it because it's certainly not that but i know what he's going for because it does sound like a bunch of musicians who are good musicians but at no point did i feel it in my guts and matt you're going to be able yeah. to make fun of me for being a hypocrite right here because i went all over you last week for how can you not hear a song you know from otis redding and be able to 
do, mm-hmm. you know, do a thing. But I will say a perfect example of what I was just talking about is uh, Long Black Veil. Because if you know the Johnny Cash version of it, yep. like it's what it's to me, that's what that's supposed to sound like. And this, you don't get any of the like darkness. And it's a, it's the, the lyrical content is basically a guy cheated on his, his wife and with his best friend's wife and he's going to die for a crime, but he will not admit that he cheated and he's going to take it to his grave. And so she walks the hills longing for him. I mean, it's like perfect Johnny Cash material, right? But there's nothing about how that song sounds on this (laughs) album that gives any of that. It's more just like it could be up on Cripple Creek in terms of like, you know, long black male, you know, and then the Oregon, it's like, this is not how it's supposed to, like the lyrics are supposed to be on this. And that's kind of my argument with the band, like, the guitar lines are excellent from Robbie Robertson. The organ playing is fantastic. Everything's as it's supposed to be. The the voices don't bother me. In fact, the different voices are there, but like I get no emotional connection from this album. It's just it just exists. And so for me, that's the problem with it. It's just that it doesn't cross over into an emotional connection and thus it leaves me flat and thus it's not a it's not a personal like for me. However, it's going to be a personal like for tons of people. And so it's impossible for me not to recommend this album to anyone who likes roots rock, Americana, jam bands, even pop music, like melodic pop music. It just isn't my jam. So there you go. There's my hot takes on this album. That's a really, uh, I'm gl- really glad you pointed that out because i think that's what i was feeling there's there's no emotion behind the songs and especially for you pointing out that a lot of the songs and the titles are about like spirituality and uh, spiritual matters or religious matters you think there would be more of that feeling behind it and i and i didn't get that so I mean, and the that's lyrical what content is about it but it's like in a very opaque way you know like, like clinical not in a, almost exactly that's a great word for it josh clinical yeah. Well, yeah. I would I I would say are you talking about the emotion the emotion that you feel Josh or the cuz I I hear emotion in their voices and I think that that's one of the things that stands out with with uh Richard Manuel and uh and Rick Danko's voice. I mean, I that seems to me it sounds very emotional. Now whether it's connecting with you or not is a different story, but um So if you like Tears of Rage, right, where he does yeah. have a lot of emotion and stuff, yeah. but ha- to me like it didn't connect to anything. It was just a law. It's the first song. It's like long. It's very emotional. But I was just like, what? What is the tears? And especially knowing it's a Dylan song, um, it's it's funny because the joke is always like half the time Dylan writes songs that are better covered than this, he would do it himself. But yeah, that's right. not the case in this one. I feel like Dylan would have taken that and made. It was like schlocky and I couldn't tie it to anything. Like, what are the mm-hmm. tears of rage? Am I supposed to be angry? Because it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like a blues song, kind of. Yeah. And it's a, we, it doesn't line up with what the lyrics are talking about or what I'm supposed to be feeling. It's like, that's kind of what I mean, if that makes yeah. sense, Matt. Yeah, no, I got you. Yeah. And I, I, I was just going to say, to answer your uh, comment, I, yeah, I'm not, I didn't connect with this album for some reason. And, I think that's partly why not yeah. not to saying they're not bringing the emotion when they're singing the songs, but I, I guess I didn't feel that. Listening. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that those are all, you know, perfectly valid. And in some ways I agree. I think 
I would first say that like I think the first I think it takes a little while for this to get going before I get to the part where I really start feeling the songs a bit more. Um, and I like I said, it's in, it's an interesting uh, band for me because I I do I do like them a lot. I like what they do. I like their overall sound. I certainly like their their style, and I appreciate you know what they were doing at the time that they were doing it. There, I, I agree though too. At the same time, there's some of these songs. It's just they're they're kind of there. They're doing cool things. There's parts where they're bringing it up, and um, I, and I'm into it. And then there's other parts where I'm like, I'm not feeling it as much. I I would say the emotional connection probably isn't there nearly as much as it is with other um uh, acts, maybe even the same genre, the same the same time for, uh time period. But um, but I still just like it. It's almost like a, an overall um like a sonic kind of template that I just like, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it just, it, and, 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 um, and I appreciate, and I think it's very distinct and it's unique. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting man. Cause I, I like them. I don't love them. I'm not like, like I said, I'm not, I'm not as crazy about other, uh, other uh, people are about them, but I think there's something about their story and about the context of, of, of what they were doing and how they were and how it was just such a, they all contributed so well. They were such great music musicians. Garth Hudson is like a virtuoso. The guy plays like oh, yeah. so many different things, and he's like a ridiculously talented musician. Um, and but it 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 doesn't it totally makes sense that this is a critic and a musicians band rather than a pop band. If well, you will, it's like listening to a virtuoso guitar player who's just very very technically proficient. Yeah, and you can admire it, but there's no connection. Right. That, that, that's how I feel. Or, or when I don't mean to pick on the, but like a band like Dream Theater, right, where they're doing a lot of complex stuff, but at no point do I ever feel in any way invested in what they're doing because it's just like, wow, you have all the skill, but it doesn't translate into, you know, the yeah. one at one minute and forty five seconds that like the Ramones, you know, Blitzkrieg Bop does, you know, by doing next to nothing. And I, I don't want to knock it because I, I like the band better than I, I like those. And if I listen to it as just instrumental and get into that headspace, especially listening to it live, I think I'd like it more, but as a complete package, it, it just didn't do it for mm -hmm. me. And so I think your take though is fair, Matt, because they are virtuoso players. For, for me, I'm trying to think of another like comparison. It's almost like for me like listening to neil young but without neil young or something like it's missing some key element for me that is mm. that is not there at least on this album maybe it will be on later albums that's yeah and I, I yeah and i could that's interesting but I, I could say this as we're talking about this i think i think that there's ingredients here for for this to be for me a stellar album Right, mm -hmm. something that I would just be like, "This is fantastic! You got to go listen to this." And I'm not there with this, right? Mm -hmm. And I and I think yeah. it's for a lot of the reasons that you guys are saying. Um, it, I, I think it could be better from my own personal standpoint, uh, is in terms of what I look for. But um, I just think it's like it's it's interesting. It's just it's it's the I don't want to say this the image, although that's part of it. But it's the musical image of this band. It's that sound that is very distinctive that I do like and. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't, you, don't get bored of it, but it's. Um, you feel I, about I, them I like people feel about the Doors. You know, it's as much mm -hmm. about the mystique of them. Not that they sound similar, but the the same yeah. kind of idea. You know, it's like I like this band as much because of. I think in your case, Matt, it's 
because of the origin story and I am aware of it and they're tied to Bob Dylan and I like Bob Dylan and I love Americana music and right. all of my favorite Americana artists love this band. So how can I not love this band? Uh, so, and whereas for me, I, Americana is a tougher sell. So the origin story holds, it doesn't get me there. So I, it's just listening to it as a piece of music. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And I think, I think some of the songs are there certainly, but it's, the weight, oh, yeah. like you said, up on Cripple Creek, that's another great example. That's like, oh man, if they did more stuff like that, yes, I would, agree. I would be, yeah. I'd be way more into right. them. But the songs that are to me like inferior to those are still good. They're still interesting to listen to, um, and some are better than just good. Some, you know, like I said, Chest Fever was a good surprise. You know, We Can Talk, mm -hmm. I liked a lot. So, um, but uh, yeah, I just this is to me this is overall this is just a very fascinating um, uh, a band. Yeah, it'll be interesting because we, we're going to do them in a couple more weeks and we're going to do their second album. So it's going to be interesting to compare album two to album one and see if we have a different take or if we sort of go the Simon and Garfunkel route where we basically do the same review three times, you know. <laughs> so, well, have you guys yeah. um, have you guys seen The Last Waltz? Yes. A uh, long time ago, yes. Yeah. And I know yes. Robbie Robertson and Martin Scorsese are a long-standing partnership in terms of scoring films from Taxi Drive or from, uh, excuse me, uh, Raging Bull all the way through the 80s and 90s. He's the go-to guy for Martin Scorsese in terms of scoring. Much to the dismay of Levon Helm. And the rest but, of the band. Yes, and the, that yeah. was a big, yes. He, Robbie but, Robertson became the genius and the rest of them got left behind, which is a bitter source of uh, <laughs> yeah. contention. Yeah, for but sure. We'll get there later. Yeah, but I think I just I bring that up because I think that that's it's it's also fun to see it's it's a different thing to see these guys live and that's a great movie and they have like a lot of great uh, guest stars and stuff but it's um yeah it's a, it's a good thing to see these guys perform live too because you can kind of get a little better sense of what they were doing and how talented they were but um and, and it's a Thanksgiving check... movie because they recorded it on Thanksgiving so I guess you're <laughs> supposed to watch that like on Thanksgiving Eve or whatever it's a tradition from that I've heard from some. Some in some circles. Oh wow! If, if you go to at Coming the our Twitter account, you can see the version of Evangeline they do from it that I posted up earlier this week. So, which is pretty Jeez. solid. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm looking forward and, to listening to that next album. Maybe, I mean, this is their first album to be fair, so maybe they're, mm -hmm. they're they change a little bit on the next one. There you go. All right. Well, I think that gets us to the end of the road right there, uh, as Boys to Men would say. <laughs> band nothing like uh, I still band. I are can't we, let are, go, John. Are we yeah, covering we that cannot. band? I don't know. We uh, we uh, I I we should. If hopefully yeah, maybe it's should. in the Rolling Stone countdown. But uh yeah, so um keep your eyes open for the potential for some bonus episodes in the next couple of weeks. We're getting close to having some, so we may have that with maybe some some guests as well. A little hint hint right there. And uh, I look forward to next week's albums. Uh, it's going to be quite an interesting collection of albums next week. Have you guys had a chance to take a look at what they are? Yes, but I, I have not listened to them yet. I think okay. I have. Do I have Miles Davis? You do. you do. Do you know which Miles Davis album you have? I have In a Silent Way. You got it. In a Silent Way from 1969. That's going to be Matt's segment. Well, why don't we each intro, Why don't we each billboard our own segment? So Matt just did his right there, the third, the second Miles Davis album, correct? Because we did Sketches That we're Spain. doing, yes. Yep. The second mm -hmm. Miles Davis album we were doing in the 60s from 1969. Josh, what is yours? I'll be discussing Cream's Disraeli Gears. Mm -hmm. my One of my father's all-time favorite albums, Josh. So when he heard we were doing that, he was... Very pumped up. He might actually listen to the show because of that Whoa. one. Whoa, wow. All right. I, I know. We're really, we're really getting into the, uh, 
the big stuff right there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, I, on the other hand, uh, I'm taking a look right now because we moved some stuff around. It looks like next week I have, I'm sorry, I'm taking a peek. It looks like I'm at Folsom Prison by Johnny yeah. Cash. Yeah. I didn't Ooh. even realize I have that next week, and I know that album super well. So that'll be an interesting one yeah, to cover. I'm sure that's that going to be a hell of a bio. Yep. Yeah. So One of my favorite lines from High Fidelity also. I still think your favorite bit biography is Cash by Johnny Cash. Well, just uh, go ahead and go ahead and post that on Twitter this week, Josh, so we can put that up there. And what I'm going to try to do is put up something from the Dewey Cox story, Walk Hard, because there's many influences and we're going to get that up there, too. So uh, check us out if you haven't on Twitter. You'll hear all the different accounts that we're on. We have a YouTube account uh, combing the stacks there. All right. Before I sign off, guys, anything you want to add? Nope. I just a real quick cleaning of the stacks. Boys to Men's highest ranked album is Boys to Men Two. It ranks mm-hmm. number two thousand one hundred and fifty six in the nineties. So we are I, not covering that uh, on the uh, best believe, ever albums. Though, I do believe though, Boys to Men Two ended up in the updated Rolling Stone top five hundred list. So it may end up finding <laughs> that's its amazing. Way in. That's amazing because it's an overall. It's eleven thousand eight fifty seven wow. on best it's ever a- albums. <laughs> well, if you've it's noticed quite the difference, best, yeah. If you've noticed, best ever albums may not be the most representative chart in terms <laughs> no, of some of the not. things that the the Rolling Stone uh, countdown was trying to go. Especially in the sixties and seventies, when yeah. it's heavily weighted to critics of the era, it starts to become a little bit more representative in the eighties on. Uh, but yeah. Uh, it's like certain types of music didn't even exist in the 60s and 70s. I would guess 90s R&B was not something that existed in the mind of best ever albums at that time. But it did to this guy, so, and apparently Rolling <laughs> Stones, so. All right, well, with that in mind, thank you for that real uh, real take uh, cleaning of the stacks. I definitely would like to give not a hot take. It is better than the, what was it, 20,000th album of all time, Voice to Men 2, yeah. so if you haven't yeah, listened to it. Yeah, it's, it's 2,000. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's better than that. So if you haven't listened 11,857 of all time. So yeah. 11,800. It's better than that. It's at least 11,850. So wait, Matt, <laughs> Matt, what are the albums next to it on that? On the overall rank? Yeah. Sa- save, that for, save that for cleaning the stacks next week. Okay. okay? Just to give a little all tidbit right, there. Right. So that's a cleaning the stack for you. Write that all down. Right. So for John, or for I do this every week. For Matt, Josh, I am John. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks. But the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song Coastin, as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track Phonetic. Have a great night! <laughs>